Hey, everybody. This is Jamin Carter. I'm a pastor at Christ City Church. Thanks for listening to our podcast and being a part of our community in this way. I want to make a special announcement, mainly for our regular attenders and uh, and our partners, because uh, that looks a little bit different these days. So we're trying to get an accurate picture of our budget for 2021, and so we're asking all of our regular attenders and partners to fill out a pledge for 2021 of what you think prayerfully your giving will be for this coming year. And the reason why this is so important is we have a lot of exciting things we're planning for in the year 2021, even though it's it's full of uh, a lot of uh, variables. We've got some great things in the works for uh, when we're worshiping back together at our campus and for the ministry for families and uh, and singles and child uh, care with Christ City Kids and our benevolence policy, still being able to help out folks. We've just got a lot of good things that we're working on and planning for. And we just want to make sure that we plan responsibly and with the appropriate amount of humility. And it'll just really help us no matter what you plan on giving, uh, whether it's uh, a, a big, generous, risky give, or if it's just uh, I'm not able to give at this time, whatever it might be, if you would just go to ChristCity.org forward slash pledge and fill out that form, uh, that will help us to accurately budget for 2021. So thanks, enjoy the message, and hopefully we will see you sooner than later. Bye. Some of you know this, some of you don't, but I've, I've been a, a bivocational minister for most of my adult, all of my adult life. And one of the things that that other vocation has been about is uh, training other teachers. And I have trained a lot of art and music teachers over the years. And one of the things that I found, it's a common mistake that many art and music teachers uh, uh, commit in, in their teaching is they don't want to give structure a lot of structure to their students. And when I come in and I say, look, um, some of the problems with this lesson happened because you didn't give the students enough structure and um, specific, uh, I'm trying not to use ac too much academic language, but, but specific outcomes uh, and things like that. And uh, that, that's where a lot of the problems li were lying in this lesson. I'll give you some examples. And they'll say, but I don't want to restrict their freedom. Like, I want them to be able to express themselves and, you know, and, and just be really creative. I don't want to limit, for example, limit the colors that they can choose. We call it a color palette. Or in uh, the way that they, they hold their tools or use their paper. But there's a failure on a fundamental level of understanding about creativity there. And that's that um, to breed creativity requires guidance and discipline, which means that you're going to have limitations. So um, discovery is, is not usually found when, when options appear infinite and unlimited, but actually when they are restricted, when the things that you can do are confined to a certain amount of things. And then what you already know, what you've already mastered or what you've already gotten used to doing 
can no longer be used to solve the problem within those restricted means. So uh, if that's a little too abstract for you, uh, here's an example. Still an art example, but we're going to get broader in just a second. If I just tell a student, like, paint a picture, be creative, do whatever you want to do, then they're going to just hold the paintbrush however, they're going to mix paint however, and uh, unless there's some kind of prodigy or they've had other instruction I don't know about, then they're probably just going to make a mess. But if I say, look, when you paint, I want you to hold your brush like this, and I want you to hold it so that just the tip of the brush touches the paper so that you can make a thin line just like this. And then I also want you to be able to, if you, I want you to make lines that go from thin to thick. So start like that and as you, as you move your brush along, press slightly so that the line gets thicker. And those are the two ways I want you to use your brush in this painting. Well, then the student can begin to learn proficient techniques and can create something beautiful, can express something through those restrictions, through developing that discipline. So um, then over time, through this discipline and these restrictions, then when you're faced with a creative problem, just thinking about it as an artist just for a second longer, what you'll be able to do is you'll say, I want to make this scene, this landscape. I want to paint this idea or whatever it is. Then you have a set of skills that you can cycle through in your mind and choose the most appropriate combination of those skills in order to produce the thing that you see in your mind to imagine and then create it. That's creativity. It's restrictions and discipline that you impose on yourself in order to develop skills so that you can produce and create the things that you want to create. Let me, let me put it this way for those of you who are really practical for the Rachel Remingtons out there, all right? So um, if you're like, well, I don't paint and I'm, you know, I, art, it's not a thing to me. All right, let's imagine that you were going to have a house built for you and all of your loved ones to live in, and you wanted it to be creative. And so you went to a person who you thought was creative, but didn't have any carpentry or construction skills, and you said, look, here's here, you have an unlimited budget. You can use whatever materials you want to use. Just be creative and, and build me a house. I just want it to be big and beautiful. Just be creative. All right, so that's one choice. Then the other choice is a person who maybe is not known for being super creative in all aspects of their life, but they have 20 years of carpentry skills. And you submit a plan to them, and you submit uh, a limited amount of materials that you want to be used and you say, within this budget, I want you to be as creative as you can to build this house. Which house would you want to live in? Yeah, number two, of course. You, you wouldn't want to live in a house built by somebody who's really creative and has no skills or disciplines to be able to produce that thing and no guidance about how to get there. Life is that way. Life is that way. And for some reason, when it comes to when it comes to like ideas around love and um, and spirituality, all of a sudden, you know, everything gets just wishy-washy and undefined. It's almost like those art or music teachers who are saying, like, I just want the kids to be creative and be able to do whatever they want. Have you're probably familiar with this um, quote? I don't know who said it. I, I see it different places, 
memes and shirts and whatnot. It's a great quote. I love it. It says, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. I love that quote. And at the same time, it's challenging to be kind. And, and it takes skill to truly be a kind and loving person. That's why we have world religions. If it was easy, if it was simple to do that, then we wouldn't have all of these different religions all over the place trying to teach people how to live that way, right? Kindness is a skill that has to be learned through discernment, through discipline, through limiting options. For example, is it easy to be kind? How do you be kind to a convicted murderer or a convicted felon? Or somebody in front of you asking for something that you don't think that they deserve? Or a family member whose political ideas seem completely illogical to you and harmful? How do you be kind? How do you be kind to someone whose lifestyle choices are scary to you? And you're like, man, I don't, I just, I can't even, I can't even wrap my head around that. Or somebody that's hurt you deeply. How do you be kind? How do you do it? Do you just intuitively know how to be kind all the time to all these people and loving? No. Because for us as Christians, manifesting a Christ-like love and kindness is a creative endeavor. Maybe that in itself, that phrase in itself, is a refreshing thought to you. Maybe it's different than the way it's been defined for you. That living a type of life that is Christ-like is a creative endeavor. So um, it also gets to this idea in the text that we're about to dive into around freedom. Uh, and, and freedom and creativity being as closely associated as they are is not about an untrained artist following their impulses. You know, I can tell the difference immediately uh, between a painting done by an amateur artist and a disciplined artist who has worked for a long time. And one of the main things that I notice is the restrictions that the professional artist is able to show in their work, the ability to control impulses, to cycle through a proper amount of skills. And I find for myself, because I'm an artist as well, that that's where I find true freedom to create what I want to make. And the same thing is true in life. If you want to paint a beautiful work of art that is your life, you need limitations so that you can develop the creativity to build the type of life with the help of the Spirit of God that you want. So, with that said, let's jump into this uh, text together, starting in verse 12. And here, uh, Paul is, what he's doing is, he is um, expressing ideas. He's heard that this, uh, this church... Uh, is talking about. So that's what he says here in verse 12. He says, I have the right to do anything you say. But then he answers, but not everything is beneficial. And then he quotes them again. I have the right to do anything. And then he says, but I will not be mastered by anything. So he's taking the phrases that they're saying that he hears about 
um, and he's answering them. Now, this letter, just to give you a little context, this letter is uh, sent to a church that Paul helped to start in a city called Corinth. And you can actually read about it in Acts 18. It's pretty dramatic what was going on there. And there was uh, people getting beat up and all kinds of stuff going on. And uh, Paul stayed there about a year and a half and helped to start uh, this church here before moving on uh, to Ephesus. You can actually probably go back into our sermon series a couple years ago. We did a whole series on the book of Acts and, and find some sermons around uh, this chapter. And um, I want to tell you something that's kind of interesting that really pertains to this topic of freedom, restriction, and creativity uh, about the city of Corinth. So um, this, is, this is happening in the first century that Paul's writing this, the first century uh, but about 200 years ago, in 146 BCE, this Greek city, Corinth, was conquered by Rome. And Rome destroyed the city, leveled it. And they rebuilt the city in 44 BCE, so roughly about 80 to 100 years before Paul wrote this letter and had visited this city. What's important, what I want you to know about this city right now is that Rome repopulated Corinth with newly freed slaves. Okay? So people who had been under the restriction of Rome's slave codes who had earned their freedom. Because it, it's not the kind of uh, slavery that we're familiar with in America where it was racially based. It was based on debts, it was based on being conquered, things like that, and there was actually pathways to earn your way out of slavery. And this city, Corinth, was filled with a lot of people who had spent probably the majority of their life in some type of servitude, some, some type of subordinate place. And this is important because Paul is responding to them around this idea of having freedom in Christ. This, this freedom they've experienced on one level, um, being freed from whoever their, their master was in Roman society, and then they're being exposed to this idea of being free under uh, the, the auspices, the, the, uh, the power of what God might expect of them. In fact, even in the previous verse from where we read, he says this in, in, the, in the latter part of the verse. He says uh, uh, to the Corinthians, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So if you're sanctified, if you're washed and sanctified and justified, that means anything you've ever done wrong is not held against you, and you are made to be in right relationship with God. And he talked a lot about this freedom in Christ. And what some of the people did is they took that and they took the impulses that they were having in a city that uh, was home to lots of pagan gods, is this port city, lots of people coming through all the time. There were lots of temples and temple prostitution and things like that set up. And he told these people came away with the message, oh, I'm free to do whatever I want. That's really great. None of it will be held against me. And they started living large, man. They started going ham. They started doing all kind of crazy stuff. 
And uh, Paul is saying, oh, whoops. Okay, wait, no, that's not what I meant. Hold up. Like, let's, let's rewind a second here. Uh, let, let's, let's deal with some things here. And what he's saying is, hey, look, if you feel like you have freedom to do anything, I just want you to know, like, that's not going to alleviate you from the natural consequences of some of your actions, okay? So um, if you want to go and uh, just be sleeping around with all, all kinds of people or doing whatever, then there's going to be some consequences to those actions. That's going to affect your relationships. That's going to affect your physical health. That's going to affect a lot of things. And um, so not everything is beneficial, even though you do. You have freedom. You can, you can be free. It's not necessarily going to benefit you to do whatever you feel like is freedom to you. And we, we know this, right? I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, this isn't an, another epiphany here that we're talking about, even though we're in the season of epiphany, uh, that uh, when we do something and we feel bad about it, we feel guilt. When we, when we are self-conscious or self-aware enough to realize we've hurt other people or we've hurt ourselves through actions uh, that we intentionally committed, we feel a sense of guilt a lot of times. And sometimes it takes a long time to feel that guilt, but it comes and it affects our relationships and it affects our behaviors. I was thinking about how this can happen with shame too, but sometimes with guilt, have you ever laid down to go to sleep at night and all of a sudden something you did a decade ago that you feel bad about pops into your head? And you start running that thing through your head over and over. I can't believe I did that. And you're just like beating yourself up in your brain. Like guilt doesn't just go away because you convince yourself you're free to do anything. There are natural consequences. There are things that we can't escape within us that, uh, that remind us of what we've done. And Paul knows that. And the people of Corinth know that. But let's take a minute to just unpack this idea of freedom and relate it to how we open the sermon, that context around creative freedom for artists or art teachers or people building houses and things like that. So there's this idea, and it's in our culture. It's very heavily in our culture, and, and it's sort of a reaction, a pendulum swing reaction to sort of our foundations in this puritanical, very restrictive way of living that a lot of the first Western settlers in America came over with. And, and this pendulum swung the other way to say, like, um, instead of restricting all of our impulses, we should not restrict any impulses. And that's what freedom means. To not, to, to any impulse you have, anything that you decide this will feel good, that we should just do that. And that's what freedom is. That's what freedom looks like. But the truth of the matter is, and many of us have probably lived enough life to, 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 to realize this, um, that when we just follow all of our impulses in life and we treat that and we try to convince ourselves that we're free, eventually what we find out is what we're trying to do is numb or mask or get away from the pain of life. And so we have these legitimate needs for healing 
um, to be seen, to get attention, to have intimacy. And some of those needs have gone unmet. And it's so painful. And we don't know what to do about it. And so we have these other impulses um, to... Uh, gossip incessantly about other people and talk badly about them or um, to, to drink away or to use away, um, whether it be drugs, sex, or whatever it might be, or to just become an insane control freak in order to try to get away from the pain. And so we're following our impulses. That's what our first impulse is, to escape into these things. But is that freedom? That's not freedom. That, that's, why, that's why spirituality and religion, and in this case specifically our religion, Christianity, is really important to address this because that's not freedom. That's actually bondage. I heard this definition of uh, addiction that fits in here really well. It says wanting something without liking it. Wanting something without liking it. Is that freedom? When you want to do something, but you don't really like how it makes you feel or how it affects your relationships after the fact. Wanting something without liking it. That's not freedom. To follow your impulses, to do whatever uh, comes to you first, to get away from the pain, to make you feel good temporarily, that's how an animal lives. Like, that's how a lizard lives. A lizard uh, is a cold-blooded animal, and so if they're sitting on a rock and that rock starts to get cold, they just move to another rock, and they look their head around all over the place to see if there's something going to eat them or something they can eat, and then they move around life, and that's all they do. They just follow their impulses. Is that lizard free? Is there even an understanding of freedom there? I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm because we, we can all relate to this. I'm just trying to put freedom in its proper context. What does it really mean to be free? Because if we if we don't understand that, then the rest of this doesn't make any sense to us anymore. Because we are starting with a faulty definition of freedom. Sure, that that uh, art student, that ten year old art student, can be free to create whatever they want without instruction and discipline and the pain of learning things. But they're not going to be able to make much with that. And that doesn't seem like freedom to me. That doesn't seem like being able to embrace the awesome creative potential that we were created in, in the image of God. So here's what happens. When we follow our impulses and we try to call that freedom, because these things help us escape the pains and the uncomfortabilities of life, we start to imagine and convince ourselves that they're good things. We, tr start to, we start to try to convince ourselves that because they take away the pain of isolation that I feel or the lack of intimacy or uh, the lack of healing that I have in my life, I try to convince myself that these things are good instead of what they are, which is evil. And um, the contemplative uh, and, and monk and uh, writer, a very prolific writer, Thomas Merton, he talks about choice and freedom and choosing between good and evil uh, in this way that I want to share with you here uh, that I think that illuminates this uh, even further. He says this, 
The mere ability to choose between good and evil is the lowest limit of freedom. And the only thing that is free about it is the fact that we can still choose good. To the extent that you are free to choose evil, you are not free. An evil choice destroys freedom. We can never choose evil as evil, only as an apparent good. Do you hear that, that line right there? That relates to so many things happening in our country right now. We can never choose evil as evil, only as an apparent good. But when we decide to do something that seems to us to be good, but it is not really so, we are doing something that we really do not want to do. And therefore, we are not really free. Freedom, therefore, does not consist in an equal balance between good and evil choices, but in the perfect love and acceptance of what is really good and the perfect hatred and rejection of what is evil. So, in this quote here, Thomas Merton is, is illuminating something pretty amazing for us, and that's that uh, this idea of when we choose something that we decide seems to be good to us, but it isn't really so, we are doing something that we really don't want to do, and that means we are really not free. You know, do we really want to try to control other people? Do we really want to, with our words, with our actions, try to limit other people to where they say and do things in a way that we feel most comfortable with? Is that what we really want? Or what is what we really want is for people to love and accept us for who we are, right? But, we, but we've had so much pain of not getting that, we start to believe what is really good is to control other people or to escape in these other ways. Freedom is not doing what you have just impulses to do and calling it good. It harms us. It harms other people. And um, this has been aided and abetted, oh, I heard that phrase a lot recently, um, by uh, this text, actually, that idea uh, in, in a strange way. But the answer to it is right here as well, because in, in verse 13, uh, Paul connects this because there's, there's reasons and there's rationalizations here that he's connecting with this false freedom narrative. He says in verse 13, you say food for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. So he's, he's quoting uh, the folks in Corinth again and he's saying like, well, hey, basically impulse rules. Like God made the, the stomach for food, Right? So fill it up, like go for your impulses and it's all going to go away anyways. Like our bodies aren't what's important. It's our spirits, right? It's our souls. It's like, you know, give your soul to Jesus. He forgives you. Get your hellfire insurance. Like all the physical stuff is going to pass away. So what's it matter? Like the body's going away. And Paul then continues in verse 13. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And he's just kind of, 
he's getting his tee set up here. He's about to he's about to hit a homer with it. But right now he's just kind of setting things up. He uses this word uh, sexual immorality uh, in the Greek. It's uh, pornea, and he uses it in different pass part of the passages here, and that's important for later. Uh, but he's basically saying this is per. A perversion of the boundaries of sexuality that are basically in the Torah, in the in the book of Leviticus around sex. Um, and uh, so he's saying that there. But here, here's what this is. This happens all the time. This is used in so many different ways. It's a it's a it's an idea he's addressing that that I call spiritual bypass. It was first uh, uh, popularized by a psychologist talking about new age kind of self-talk thinking where people would talk themselves out of the hurts of life and just like do positive thinking things and say like I don't have to look at this thing from the past anymore because I have these mantras and stuff but it's used all the time today in Christianity and it's this idea that uh, we're divorced from the consequences of our world in some way it's the idea used against taking the time and creativity to build renewable energy sources and to treat our environment as a giant wastebasket. That, oh, it's all going to go away. God's going to take us all up into the clouds, and it'll just all be great, right? So we could just be completely reckless. And so the people are saying that, hey, I need some rationalization for this unhealthy way I'm dealing with the pain in my life. And my rationalization is actually because of God, that God is going to destroy the body and uh, will just be spirits and all that kind of stuff. So I don't really have to worry about it. You just said I was saved. I was justified. My sins were taken care of. So let me do my thing. My, my addictions are too precious to me because they help me cope with the faithless life that I'm living right now. So uh, the excuse to live shamelessly, without the shame, the limitations of what we have and who we are, the physical, material world, at the core of that is just a lack of faith that our needs can be met legitimately. And we all struggle with it. That's why we have to practice a faith. That's why we have eight practices, because it's a skill that has to be learned and developed and guided by the Spirit of God. And here goes. So he's got the T set up. Verse 14, he's going to hit it. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise you also. He'll raise us also. So he says, uh, oh, so you think God's going to destroy all this stuff? then why did he raise Jesus from the dead in a physical body? This is the ultimate expression, the ultimate affirmation of all this stuff, this skin and bones and meat and this dirt and earth that we live in, that God is not done with or that he thinks it is ex uh, expendable, our physical and material world, so much so that the crux of our faith is on the bodily and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this, this means that everything that we do, it's not about a rule taskmaster up there with a tally chart. It's that God thinks that your body and the things that you do in it are so holy 
and valuable that it's elevated to a higher importance than, than anything around what was happening around the Corinthians would have told them. That, that you are so loved and appreciated and affirmed in everything that you are, warts and all, by God, that it matters so much what you do with your body. And that, that is where the freedom will be found. It is in what God affirms about our lives, about our bodies, about who we are. This is the creative energy that we talked about last week in the beginning of this series. This life-affirming, gender-affirming, material world-affirming power of God. Later on, in that same passage that I quoted from Thomas Merton, Thomas says this, God, in whom there is absolutely no shadow or possibility of evil or of sin, is infinitely free. In fact, he is freedom. Man, that's good stuff. I want some more of that. I am... Uh, not going to be able to share everything that I wanted to share uh, about this passage uh, this morning. Um, I know that's disappointing to many of you, but uh, I'm going to continue to, uh, that was sarcasm, I'm going to continue to unpack just a little bit more here, and I just want you to know there's much more to explore here in this passage. Verse 15 says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. So, Paul is taking us logically through this idea of a false understanding of freedom. Saying, yes, you're free. You're free. You can do what you want. And God will not condemn you for it. And yet, God is so interested and concerned with you and your value and your worth and your neighbor's value and your worth that he would raise the body of Christ from the dead physically, materially. And not even just that, but in verse 15, he says, and you are actually united, Kalao in the Greek, to glue together, to fasten together to Christ himself. And so he is saying, you are a part of the Christ, the Savior of all. That is what is happening and taking place in your body that you are united and integrated into the body of the Messiah of God. So we have this ultimate affirmation that even in our corruptible bodies, that we are united in Christ, even so much so that he finishes this passage and tells us it is your body that's the temple. It is your bodies that are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, it's not, he's saying, okay, so let's start from you, but it doesn't start and end with your choices. 
It's also that your choices are inextricably tied to God and to other people and to the presence of God in you and other people. This is an incredibly high value that this scripture is giving to each and every human being. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to finish this up here. going to have to wrap it up. Uh, making, making decisions here. Um, so, uh, you know, this passage has, I know it's been used against people in different ways. I hope what we've been able to do this morning helps in part, at least, for you to see it in a different light. Um, but uh, I want to say that, um, you know, the example that Paul uses here, shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a the prostitute? Never. He is using the example that fits into the culture and the time that, the, that those who are reading this letter are in. So he's talking to men who would be able to go and leave their wives and go and visit uh, prostitutes in the temple. Men were the only ones able to do that under Roman law, which is what Corinth was under. And so this was actually a a, a chastisement towards men and their behaviors uh, that were allowed by law in Roman culture. And um, the fact that it has been used primarily uh, in recent times to, for this sort of purity culture that really was to uh, control women's sexuality is telling. And here's what I want to say as uh, I just wrap this up, uh, wrap up our time here in the scriptures with this idea of, of living uh, creatively, is that when we look at these scriptures, it is also important that we have tools, uh, just like a painter needs tools. That if we go to the scriptures with a blunt tool of an untrained spirit and an untrained mind, and we expect to glean away some perfect truth, some timeless cultural norms, we will be gravely disappointed. And uh, we see a lot of that, the manifestations of that in our world right now. And so um, I... Uh, the things that we haven't approached in these scriptures here with the sexual mores and norms of the day, are those that I wanted to get to those things more this morning, and, and we will more uh, in the future. But uh, the, the overarching idea here in this passage that Paul is giving us is a picture of freedom and how that freedom is found in unity, in connection with uh, our interior, with who we are, what we believe about the worth of ourselves first, and then the worth of each and every person around us, and how God thinks more highly of us and other people than we have yet to understand and experience. And this is what guides someone who is free. 
It's free to do what is good, as Thomas Merton said, to be able to look at life and to be able to freely choose what is good and recognize it as good, which can only be found as we get to closer and closer with fits and starts and backward steps into understanding how we're all united in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And so the choice before us today and every day is something that um, MLK said in one of his speeches, that every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. And that is our choice as we ponder and we either move towards an integrated and unified understanding of us and the world that we live in or a boundaried and distinct and separate way uh, of viewing ourselves and our actions. So with that said, let's go ahead and pray and go to the table this morning. Lord, I thank you that you are more creative and that you are more life-affirming than we have yet to imagine or experience or to fully understand. I pray that as we come to the table this morning to receive assurance that our, our harmful actions, the things we have felt guilt for and shame about, the sin that we have committed, that you are not holding that against us, but instead you hold out the table of fellowship before us, the hand of fellowship, the gesture of love, and that you embody this uh, in a physical human form. I pray that we would be able to interact with that with creativity and with the affirmation of life that you have demonstrated for us. In Jesus' name, amen.